Welcome to episode four of the Beyond Devices podcast. I'm Jan Dawson and with me as usual is Aaron Miller. Um, this week we're going to be talking about a couple of different topics. I'm going to start out by talking about the Taylor Swift Apple conversation, if we can call it that, that happened mostly on Sunday. It was, it was amazing how brief it was, but the, uh, the change to the Apple Music service and the way that royalties will be distributed that, that ended up being announced on Sunday afternoon. Um, we'll talk about our question of the week, which this week we'll talk about Apple's various um, public beta and developer preview versions of its new operating systems and some of the timing, but also some of the kind of things to know if you're planning to play with some of these versions. Um, and then towards the end of the show, after the question of the week, we'll talk about a couple of other topics. We'll talk about um, iOS 8.4, which of course is going to bring uh, Apple Music with it and the impact that that might have on iOS 8 adoption in general. And then we'll finish up with a quick discussion of Apple's relationship with a company called Liquid Metal, which uh, is the exclusive licensee of uh, or licensor of a technology, a uh, certain type of metal alloy that Apple has had exclusive rights to for the last several years and just renewed its relationship with and, and yet doesn't seem to have actually used as far as we know in any of its products. So that will be the final topic today. Um, let's start out though with talking about Taylor Swift and this was one of these funny things I was on vacation got home Sunday evening and Monday morning was catching up on Twitter on, on tweets from Sunday uh, and so I was working through them and, and I was kind of sending out tweets kind of saying I wish you know Apple would change this policy and so on and so forth and it was only <laughs> about 15 minutes into this series of tweets that I realized that Apple had already responded to these things that had only been raised earlier in the day on Sunday by the end of the day um, it had been resolved. So just to run through the timeline briefly, Taylor Swift posted a Tumblr post over the weekend in which she said, I love you, Apple, but, um, and her main bone of contention was this three-month free trial period in which artists were not going to be paid um, for streams of their music was unacceptable to her. And she was therefore going to withhold her 1989 album, her latest album, uh, from the service uh, when it launched. Um, and within a few hours, apparently, Eddie Q and Tim Cook had a conversation in which they basically agreed that they would change that policy and they would start paying out at least some amount of royalties to uh, artists and their labels uh, during the three-month free trial period. And it all happened incredibly quickly. Um, Aaron, any kind of initial thoughts about this whole thing? You know, I, um, I, my first reaction was, way to go, Taylor Swift. I, it, you know, she's massive. She's huge. Whether or not you like her music, that's true. I think her 1989 album is the best selling of the last two or three years. I can't remember. I mean, it's been a really big deal, especially in, a, in an era where album sales are continuing to decline. Um, I, I'll admit, I, when I first heard about the fact that Apple was not paying uh, uh, artists during the the free trial period, I thought, well, that must just be standard practice, but it's not. Spotify pays during that during their free trials. Now, granted, theirs have been a lot shorter than three months in the past. Um, you know, it, it's been anywhere from a week to a couple of months. I think is the longest you've ever been able to get a Spotify Premium preview, like for free. Um, but uh, you know, I, there was sort of this attitude that uh, Apple was this gigantic. Um, gorilla just basically pushing everybody around especially all these artists in fact there was a rumor at one point that one musician an independent musician had been threatened with removal of all of his songs from the itunes store if he didn't agree to the apple music deal with the streaming part um 
Apple denied that, but you wonder if maybe there was a contract rep who got a little tough on his end of the bargaining. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, for Taylor Swift to stand up, I, I think uh, it, I think is what it would have taken. I don't think there's, it's hard to imagine anybody else who could have pulled that off because it took a combination of factors for that to come together. It obviously took a massive artist like Taylor Swift to be able to do that. But it also took an artist that had control of his or her music. Um, right. A lot of really big artists are still, you know, entirely subject to the decisions of labels and the labels have all mm-hmm. sort of bought into Apple Music. Yeah. Or so it seems. And so, uh, you know, it took somebody like Taylor Swift who could just unilaterally entirely on her own decide to withhold an album mm-hmm. uh, and sort of make that threat. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing, right? Because it, it was it was her. It, there was Adele and her label and. But the vast majority of the other kind of holdouts here were little tiny indie artists and labels. And the challenge there is that no single voice, you know, they were all kind of leaking to the press that they were not going to be part of this stuff and complaining here and there. But none of them by themselves had the kind of voice that was really going to make a huge difference. Adele was probably the biggest artist uh, in the group that was holding out at that point. But Taylor Swift, as you say, is such a huge artist and is so kind of adept to in her use of social media and her fan base to put pressure on. Um, Apple in this case, um, that that it really did kind of totally swing things around. Um, The other thing I was really struck by was kind of the fact, you know, that Apple is run in such a way that two people could have a conversation on Sunday afternoon and make a total U-turn on a major policy decision regarding a service that's due to launch, you know, just over a week away at the time. Um, you know, that's kind of fascinating to me. I think there are many, many companies where there's no way that could happen. You know, there'll be so many layers of bureaucracy and lawyers and goodness knows who else involved to approve a decision like that. And it seems that Eddie Q and Tim Cook simply had a conversation and decided this was the right way to go and, and really nip this in the bud. Um, and in a way that I think really reflects well on Apple in some ways, as well as it reflects well on Taylor Swift. Um, one of the things that was fascinating to me was seeing on Monday, um, Facebook friends who never talk about technology in any way, uh, posting these articles about Taylor Swift putting pressure on Apple and getting what she wanted, basically. Um, you know, so it kind of took Apple Music from something that's only been discussed in certain quarters to something that was suddenly meaningful to people that are mostly interested in music rather than technology. Oh, that's so true. NPR did a piece on it. <laughs> I mean, over what yeah. happened, with what happened over the weekend. Like, you know, I'm driving, I was driving home the other day and, and I think it was on Monday and NPR was doing a piece on it. And that was, that was what sort of locked it in my mind is, okay, this is outside the Apple news bubble, clearly, because NPR right. is talking about Taylor Swift versus Apple. Although, you know, what's funny about it is, I mean, there are a couple added dimensions to this. One, Apple has a reputation of pushing people around, especially when it comes to closed ecosystems. Like yeah. they, they have a reputation of it being their way or the highway. Um, it took a white knight really to be able to fight them on this. I, I think another attribute that had to be in place for an artist to pull this off, besides being huge and having control over her music, Taylor Swift has a reputation for being gen- generous and genuine. Um, you know, like the way she's always like giving to her fans, you know, she'll pick random fans out from their social media posts and send them Christmas presents. I mean, she she gives back a lot. Now, you could be cynical mm-hmm. that that's just all part of her marketing strategy. Uh, there's sure. certainly a marketing benefit to it. But the truth is, in the public view, Taylor Swift is seen as being very generous. So when she says, look, I'm speaking up for my, my other friends, right, mm-hmm. these other artists who don't have a voice, 
it was a lot easier for everybody to believe her because she had already built up a reputation as being somebody who thought about other people instead of just herself or her bottom line. I think Absolutely. I think yeah. if it had been an artist, like any of the artists that were standing on stage during the title launch, for example, <laughs> I think they yeah. would have had a harder go of it, you know, of sort mm-hmm. of making the case publicly. But Taylor Swift, you know, because of her reputation she's built up, I, I think had a much had, had had a much heavier hammer to swing in the fight. So yeah absolutely and this wasn't the first time that she'd kind of spoken out about industry economics either i mean she wrote a wall street journal op-ed of all things a while back um and has had several other kind of public statements about spotify specifically but also about the direction of music and the industry and business models and so on and and so you know she'd established some credibility ahead of time too that there wasn't some neophyte coming in and talking about a business that she knows nothing about you know it's clear that she really does know what she's talking about here um as well as obviously having a very clear stake in, in the industry itself you know, and, and I will say she had I mean, she had a valid argument when it comes to independent artists, because essentially, if you're a one hit wonder band and there are a lot of them out there, mm-hmm. um, a three month period could be essentially the burn rate on your song. And, yeah. and, and if you and if it, now the, obviously the, the huge mass of signups are going to be starting next week and going mm-hmm. through the end of the summer. And if you have a big song during that time period to have gotten paid nothing for that, and then mm-hmm. it sort of peters out and everybody gets sick of it, uh, it's a, it would be a major financial blow to an yeah. independent artist, somebody who relies on you know all the revenue they can get from all the different sources it comes in from. Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. I mean, when I first saw the indie labels complaining about it last week, I think it was, I kind of, my initial reaction was, oh, come off it, you know, one free trial isn't going to do that much damage. But the more I thought about it, there's a couple of things. One is this is not, you know, some brand new service out of nowhere that's going to take a while to build. It really is going to be hundreds of millions of people potentially next week downloading iOS 8.4 and starting to use it all at the same time. And then the sheer length of the trial over three months means that potentially July, August and September, you know, not only is Apple going to sell almost no music during that time, uh, but it's going to suck the wind out of a lot of the rest of the industry too. You know, anybody right. who has, uh, you know, an ad-supported subscription to one of the other services will probably use it a lot less during that time if they use iOS. Um, you know, anybody who pays might decide to cancel at that time, you know, planning to pay for the Apple service when when that happens later on. You know, it's basically going to suck a lot of the money out of the music industry uh, from the most valuable users, who are the iOS users, who tend to spend more on this kind of stuff. And so I, that started to have a lot more credibility for me at that point, once I started really thinking through that and the impact it could have. And again, for Taylor Swift, it really doesn't matter. She makes tons of money from concerts and other stuff. But for the small up-and-coming artist who relies very much on actual plays, and purchases of music, it could be devastating. You know, I think it's going to be interesting to see what happens to Spotify's paid subscriptions next week. Because the problem that Spotify has is there's no real, I mean, from what I've read, they make it kind of hard to cancel. But uh, I mean, other than that, there's no real barrier to, to sort of stopping your subscription to the paid service now, right? When right. Apple comes out mm-hmm. with, with their music, you basically run for three months with free streaming. Mm-hmm. And then, and then people could restart Spotify if they decide they don't like Apple Music. I, you know, I could picture this having now. Spotify has about twenty million paid users, I think. Yeah, I could see, you know, at least a ten to twenty percent hit in that, um, just because of Apple Music. It, because, it, it, and again, it depends on how easy it is to cancel. I've never, I, I don't sign up. I don't pay for Spotify, so I've never had to cancel Spotify. But. Uh, 
I'm really curious to see how bad they get hit by this. Yeah, absolutely. I think it could be pretty significant for them. I, yeah. I do want to say two other things about the Taylor Swift thing. One of the common arguments I've seen, which to me was less persuasive, but I want to like bring it up, is this idea that Apple's giving exposure to all these artists. I, I had a hard time understanding that argument because if everybody's getting exposure at once, then nobody's getting exposure. Um, you know, this idea that sort of these indie artists are getting exposure by being on Apple Music and they should be grateful for that. It, there are going to be 37 million songs or whatever it is. I can't remember how many songs there are, but th- they're going to be so there's going to be so much music on there. No independent artists that would have gotten the shaft, you know, in the in the payment side is going to be getting extra exposure uh, over anybody else. The, the one argument that I thought was persuasive to justify Apple, and because and, it's important to note, Apple's not going to be paying the full amount that, they, that they'll pay when the trials end. Um, they're paying on a per stream basis, and it's going to be less than the amount it, that will be paid out for, uh, for actual paid subscribers. Hmm. Um, you know, Apple is fronting a huge financial investment in this. Um, uh, obviously, the, you know, the, 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 the work it's taken to put Apple Music together, programming it, setting up the servers to be able to handle the huge load that's coming. I, I mean, Apple put a big financial investment in it, just buying Beats, right? It was a huge mm-hmm. financial investment. Um, and so that's why I think it's okay that Apple's not paying the full value of these songs during the trial period, because I think it's appropriate that artists at least share a little bit of the risk in this change. Because if Apple can really get everybody paying for streaming music, it's going to completely change the music industry. In fact, odds are people will be spending more for music than they've ever spent. And uh, and I think it's appropriate for artists to, to front a little bit of that risk. But the idea that they wouldn't get paid at all just left a really sour taste. And so I'm glad that yeah, Apple yeah. made such a quick about face in that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the big question then remains, what is that rate? You know, Is it equivalent to Spotify's ad-supported rate, for example? Um, which is about half a cent a play or slightly less um, or is it something less or something more than that and, and I imagine that news will start to trickle out over the next couple of weeks but it'll be fascinating to see what that level is. Yeah, it, it, was, it was obviously enough to bring in the indie labels that had been holding out. I mean, yeah. Beggars Music and the Merlin Rights mm-hmm. Group has recommended it to all of their their thousands of indie labels right. um, to go with the deal. So it, it's obviously compelling enough that it's okay with everybody. Yeah, Absolutely. Okay, well, let's move on to our question of the week. Um, and this week, when we're talking about the new versions of iOS and OS X that were announced at uh, WWDC a couple of weeks ago, um, and specifically about some of the ways in which people can get early access to uh, those new releases before they formally release to the public in the fall. Um, so perhaps it's best if we start. And Aaron's done the research this week, so he's going to be taking the lead on this topic. But Aaron, perhaps we can start by talking about the difference between these kind of three different versions, really, that exist um, when these new versions of uh, operating systems come out from Apple. Yeah, so what's available now is called the developer preview, and that's true for OS X with El Capitan, iOS 9, and also watchOS 2.0. Essentially, what's out for all three of those platforms is the developer preview. Um, This is almost always rough. Um, It turns out it's a little more stable this time than it was uh, last year at around the same time, but uh, but these are rough. I'll give you an example that I know I've been reading that uh, the iOS 9 developer preview is one of the worst on battery life for iPhones 
um, that people have seen in the last few years. Uh, you, you'll get like half the battery life. And that's because, you know, when Apple introduced, when really anybody writes new code, the optimization part uh, usually happens at the end. And uh, and so it's going to be overusing things like your processor, uh, your your Wi-Fi, uh, that sort of stuff. And, and because it, because... Because it overuses it, it destroys your battery life. And, and so, uh, you know, it's funny because every year there are people who, through legitimate or illegitimate means, not developers, they get these early developer preview um, versions of the software, put it on their stuff, and then they go into forums complaining. <laughs> they say, my battery right, life is right. horrible. And it's like, well, what did you expect? You know, it doesn't take a lot of research to figure out that the developer previews are always pretty rough. Um, Apple's already updated the developer previews to, to mm -hmm. preview two, um, yep. which they did just recently. And we'll probably expect to see one or two more of those before mm -hmm. the public beta comes out. Um, in fact, if I remember right last year, I think they were at developer preview four on OS 10 before they came out with the public beta for that. Right. Okay. So then that brings us to the public beta. So tell us about that and how that's different. Well, it's different because Apple has to release a product that's not going to um, upset a lot of people. <laughs> I mean, there are going to be bugs. Uh, there are going to be problems. And I kind of have a list of, of advice that I'd like to give anybody who's thinking about installing the public betas. But um, but it's going to be much more stable. Uh, you'll probably still see a reduction in battery life um, on any battery-powered devices like laptops or iPhones, iPads. Um, but it is going to be more stable. What's uh, what, one of the things that people need to be aware of, though, and I think this is the biggest deal, is uh, if you're going to install the public beta, you what Apple releases may be decently stable, right? I mean, it, it will be like all the basic functions of your iPhone or iPad or Mac are going to work fine. Um, where you're probably going to encounter the biggest problems is in compatibility with third-party software. Um, what happens is when Apple releases a new um, OS for either the Mac or, or the iOS devices, um, there are changes in APIs. There are um, changes in other processes that often break third-party software. And it's important to remember, developers will have only had um, you know, these new platforms for uh, a month to six weeks before the public gets them. And uh, that's not a whole lot of time to fix everything that breaks when a new operating system version comes out. Mm. And, and so it's in the early months, probably the biggest problem that public beta users are going to experience is with third-party software. And it's also because third-party's, you know, third-party developers, the deadline in their mind to get these updates pushed out is the fall when Apple releases mm -hmm. the final versions and all the public gets them automatically. Right. Uh, and, and so that's the one thing to consider is you know that your phone might work okay um but uh the app you like to use all the time uh, may not right yeah and that's certainly the case on on uh, os 10 as well yeah we'll, we'll probably see i forgot to mention we'll probably see these around july 22nd or 23rd is my guess mm -hmm. like that sounds really specific <laughs> but uh you know, Apple is a company of habit, and last year they released on the 24th and so uh, of July. I, I think we'll probably see it around the same time frame for okay. both the uh, uh, iOS and OS X public betas. 
And it's a fairly new concept still for Apple, right? I mean, the developer previews have been around for quite some time, but the public betas are relatively new. Yeah, for OS X, it's only a year old. I mean, they right. well, that's actually not technically true. When they did the very first original version of OS X back in uh, the early 2000s, um, they had a public beta program, and you could buy a disk. You actually had to pay for it, and you could buy and install disk to put the very early rough version of OS X. I actually ran this on a computer I had at my desk at the time. Um, it was really fun to play around with, and I got really excited about the future of, of uh, the Mac at you know back then. But I remember I had to pay for the disk, and uh, and it was really super rough. Um, beyond that point, they stopped doing it up until last year um, with Yosemite. The public beta program last year allowed the first million users to sign up for it. Mm -hmm. um, they uh, apparently have removed that limit. You can't find any evidence anywhere of them saying there's a limit on how many people can sign up for the public beta for OS X. Mm -hmm. The iOS public beta is even younger. They started that program back in March of this year. Right. Um, and when they did that, they limited it to the first 100,000 users. Um, again, what they, they haven't put a limit on iOS public beta for the iOS 9. So presumably, you know, anybody who wants it is going to be able to get it. Yeah. And then the public releases are coming in the fall. I think that was about as specific as they got during the keynote. Do you have a sense of when that might be more specifically based on recent history? Yeah. So um, up until Mavericks, Apple was releasing OS X, like the final public version, every summer, usually in July. Um, they sort of changed that schedule when they switched to, when they went to Mavericks and pushed it off until October. Um, and they've so they've released the last three versions of OS X um, in October. Uh, it was actually a really interesting problem last year because last year the iOS 8 final version came out in September, and then the OS X version that corresponded with it came out in October. So there was a little over a month separation between the two. Which is kind the of reason, problematic because of things like continuity and handoff and so on. Yeah, exactly. Like continuity was a problem. Um, that, that where there was overlap that was that that was missing uh, iCloud right. Drive was also a problem because mm -hmm. on your iOS device you could have you were able to upgrade to upgrade to iCloud Drive but then your Mac wasn't upgraded to iCloud Drive and so if you're mm -hmm. using like the iWork suite that was a problem then um, those are pretty th I mean those are pretty substantial features that were misaligned for about a month right. last year this year the only misalignment if they if they do the same release schedule with with iOS 9 in September with the iPhone event and then and then OS 10 in October, probably with the release of some new Macs. Um, the only overlapping feature that I can figure out is Notes, yeah, <laughs> which is hardly yeah. as sort of mission critical as iCloud Drive was. Mm -hmm. So, it, you know, it'll be interesting to see. But at the same token, last year, you know, OS 10 had a long way to go because th with Yosemite did did the major UI upgrade. I mean, there were there was a lot that changed with Yosemite last year. And that extra month was was really obviously important, especially if you're using the betas. You could tell that there were still improvements being made during that last month. This year, it seems less substantial. Like the this, you know the move from Yosemite to El Capitan doesn't seem like that big of a jump. And so I won't be surprised if they do come out with OS 10 in September along with iOS 9. Mm. Um, it, uh, it, it it that doesn't mean it's going to happen. Um, 
Apple may keep them separate just because uh, of their internal timelines. Uh, it may be because they want to do, you know, the El Capitan release with new Macs. Uh, there, you know, there are rumors already floating around of the new Skylake base uh, Intel chips, the Skylake chip set that uh, Intel's been working on. There may be new MacBook Pros at least in October. Um, so it, it's kind of a guess. If they follow the pattern they followed last year, iOS 9 will be in September, early September, and then uh, and then OS 10 El Capitan will be out in October. Right, interesting. Um, any more thoughts in terms of kind of, are you running any of this stuff right now in the developer previews? I think we talked previously about how you had yeah. previous, last year or something, it didn't go well. So last year I went with the developer previews and regretted it. And uh, this year I'm, I'm restraining myself to just the public betas. Um, the uh, uh, it was it was had a lot to do with the third party software compatibility. Uh, right. There was stuff that I used that was broken for much longer than I than I would have liked. Mm. Um, this year I, I don't think it'll be quite as bad, especially because I'm limiting myself to the public beta. I, I will give just some general advice to people. One, if you want to sign up for this, uh, you can do it on Apple's website. Um, you'll need to sign up uh, uh, with your Apple ID. Um, and then the associated devices will become eligible for those software upgrades. Um, before you do that, just remember, you know, don't do this on your main device, uh, you, you know, your primary iPhone or your primary Mac, unless uh, you're comfortable with that risk. Uh, you, you, with OS X, you can at least install it on an external drive or a separate partition. So you could switch back and forth between, you know, uh, Yosemite and El Capitan. That's not possible with iPhone or iPad. Um, so before you take that jump, also it's important to know Apple usually lists all of the known issues with every beta version. They'll tell you what's broken, uh, at least the major things that are broken. That's on their side, not with third party software. Um, I, I, I'd also add that uh, um, if you do this, you're gonna keep getting beta releases beyond the final versions coming out in the fall mm -hmm. because Apple will come out with the iOS 9.1 they'll come out with El Capitan 0.1 and being enrolled in the public beta program means you continue to get beta releases of sort of improvements now that means you're probably getting fixes faster than most people but every once in a while a 0.1 release does cause problems so that's right. a risk you're taking it's good to know though that if you don't like that um, you can unenroll from these programs and Apple gives instructions on their website as, as to how to do that. So essentially you can say, I don't want to get these developer previews anymore. Um, if you take the leap, just know that there's no way to downgrade other than restoring from a backup. So right. back up your phone or, or iPad before you do this, back up your Mac before you do this, because that's going to be the only way to conveniently get back to what you had before installing these betas. So make sure you have a good backup if that's going to make you at all nervous. Um, and the truth is you probably shouldn't expect highly stable releases of these until around the end of August. That's about the time at which the public betas for both will probably be settled in and you won't be encountering any major issues. Yeah. I, I do want to make one other point. You know, the reason Apple does this is because they get valuable feedback from users. I mean, there's no other reason for Apple to do it than to get feedback so they can make the final versions more stable. Um, I reached out to a contact at Apple, um, got some feedback on it. Um, you know, I think it speaks a lot to the value that this public beta program has that Apple has 
for example, taking the user cap limit, you know, taking the user cap off so there's no million user, 100,000 user limit. Um, but the reason this works for Apple is because users give feedback. The earlier you can give your feedback if you're running the beta, the better. Uh, and the more detailed your feedback, the better. That's how stuff is going to get fixed. And on both of these platforms, there's a feedback assistant that uh, gives you the opportunity to give Apple detailed feedback on things that they notice. Um, you, if you're catching bugs and reporting them to Apple, if you do a good job of that, they're going to get fixed and everybody's better off because of it. Um, so that, I guess that's the last point I want to make because mm. Apple cares a lot about the feedback they get from this process. And so if you're going to be running this and you encounter bugs, take the time to report those. Right. Absolutely. Right. Well, thank you, Aaron, for, for researching that for us and talking us through it. Um, we're going to move on to now a related topic, which is iOS 8.4 specifically. And this has been out there as a beta for a while now. And obviously, uh, uh, as a developer preview as well, even before that, um, this version is the version that brings Apple Music. So this is kind of unusual in that it's a point release of iOS that brings a major new service with it. Um, and you can't get Apple Music on an iPhone unless you upgrade to iOS 8.4. And the interesting thing here is that iOS 8 in general has seen a slower upgrade rate than uh, iOS 7 and previous iOS releases. And, and there are 14% of the, the iPhone base that's regularly checking into the App Store according to Apple, that's still running iOS 7, which is higher than it was last year. Um, and you know, part of the reason, which was quite high profile a few months back when it launched, is the sheer size of that update, which was quite significant and meant that many people with limited space on their devices who couldn't or didn't want to plug into a computer to upgrade were unable to upgrade to iOS 8 and therefore were stuck on iOS 7. Um, but I think there are at least a couple of other reasons why people aren't upgrading. I think one of them is um, that they are on older devices that simply don't support iOS 8. Um, and I think a third one is that they just don't feel the need. Um, and, you know, we talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago, but there are certainly people who are perfectly happy with what they have and would rather it just stayed the same rather than carrying on changing all the time so they have to learn new things and, and you know, trying to find where this is now or that is now that used to be somewhere and now it's moved or whatever. Um, and I'm really curious when iOS 8.4 comes out to see to what extent it solves that problem or, or helps people to, to motivate people in either the first or third groups to, to deal with whatever the issue is and move on and go ahead and upgrade. I mean, obviously, it doesn't solve the size problem. That's going to be solved in iOS 9 with a much smaller upgrade uh, file size and space requirement size. Um, but I, I think because of how compelling Apple Music is going to be, um, and they just announced you know an exclusive for Pharrell's new single, for example, coming next week, Things like that are going to motivate people who perhaps wouldn't have been motivated normally to upgrade software because it's not just a software upgrade, it's a, a service upgrade. I don't know, Aaron, do you think that's going to work for them? Do you think that's going to make a meaningful difference? I think so. I, I mean, the truth is I've always thought the comparison to iOS 7 uptake um, was a little distorted because iOS 7 was a major change. I, I mean, that was when they made the huge upgrade to the user interface. And so I think people were especially anxious to try out iOS 7 iOS 8 was more incremental, and I think as a result of that, there were sort of less, people just felt less anxious. There wasn't any compelling feature yet to to, to wrap people in. Um, it, Apple Music is going to go after that third group you mentioned, right? The people mm -hmm. who haven't who haven't seen a feature yet that has right. compelled them. I, I think three months worth of free streaming music uh, might do it for them. Yeah, 
yeah, it seems like a pretty compelling reason to go um, go upgrade. I, I wondered though, to, you know, for some people who haven't bothered to say delete enough stuff off their phone to be able to upgrade, if it might motivate some of those people too. Maybe they'll just wait for iOS nine, when obviously they'll get that functionality and take the three month free trial then instead. That's true, because I mean they just have to wait till the fall. Right. I, you know, I'm excited about the new iOS nine feature. I don't know if you saw this, but uh, essentially iOS nine is going to auto delete apps to make mm. space for updates and then reinstall the apps for you automatically. Yeah, I saw that. So That's, uh, I, I think it's a cool idea for a feature. Um, it does make me nervous about you know because the, the data for an app is stored inside the app. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm worried about like, I mean, like if my kid's up, iPad gets updated and then they come back to me complaining that their saved games have been lost. Yes, that would, <laughs> that be, a would, disaster. Be, yeah. that would be a painful moment. But, yeah. uh, you know, hopefully they're smart enough in the way that they manage that, that that's not going to be a problem. Yeah, absolutely. So one last topic we wanted to talk about um, is that this week, yesterday, I think it was Tuesday, um, there was an announcement that Apple had renewed its agreement with um, the licensor of Liquid Metal, which is this alloy or series of alloys which Apple's licensed, but as far as we know, is only ever used in the um, SIM card ejector in the iPhone 3GS um, that was shipped with the phone uh, in the US um, back when that phone was selling. Um, we're not aware of any other uses of that technology right now, but every couple of years, Apple has renewed that exclusivity agreement with the manufacturer and of course that's led to speculation that it, it might you know still wait, make its way into phones and there are various sort of patent applications and things like that out there you know it's kind of a good example of how apple uses its cash to secure the rights to components that it considers vital to its products it's done that with sapphire it's done it with gorilla glass it's done it with various other pieces of technology as well um, in ways that guarantees that it can make very large quantities of these things and also makes it much harder in some cases for competitors to get their hands on some of that same technology and some of those same components. Um, but this is another one of those examples where Apple you know, makes these decisions to either patent things or to license technology and so on with no guarantee that that will actually see the light of day anytime soon. Um, and so despite all the speculation, there's, there's kind of a strong possibility that it's just an insurance policy for Apple that we'll never actually see it land in any products. Um, Aaron, what do you think? Are we likely to see anything based on liquid metal anytime soon? You know, it's so hard to say. This is such a weird contract for Apple because they only renew it a year at a time. So it's not like they're taking on a huge commitment, which tells me that they're still hedging when it comes mm-hmm. to how they're going to use the technology. They haven't bought it outright, for example. They essentially right. just renew this exclusiveness a year at a time. Um, the uh, you know the benefits of it are interesting, but it, it, essentially what's cool about liquid metal is that it can be cast and molded at lower temperatures. It, it takes I'm not a chemical engineer, but essentially it takes a non-crystalline form when it hardens, um, which allows it to be much more flexibly cast and molded. Apple doesn't do a whole lot of casting or molding, um, with the exception of the watch, but you know they mostly do milling. Like they take chunks of aluminum and 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 basically mill them to get them the shapes that they want. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wonder if way back when um, Apple was still developing the aluminum milling technology that they have, and and then liquid metal was sort of this other path. And it seems like they're holding on to it over time, just because who knows what's going to happen, um, and they might have other applications. Um, but it's hard to say. I think if there is an application for this, I, I, I don't think we should be surprised if it goes into the watch. 
Um, right. Omega, who makes really high-end watches, has used liquid metal before in some of their watches. And because uh, it, it also can be cast really super thin um, compared to other metals. And, uh, and so Omega has used it in their watches before. Um, I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if we see an Apple watch that has liquid metal technology in it. You know, the other thing, the other place it might show up is just in the parts we never see, you know, stuff like hinges. Right. That's what I was going to say. Something behind the scenes. Yeah. Other internal sort of casings where, you know, it's it's a cheaper and easier, more reliable way to cast those, you know, those little parts that help Apple keep stuff thin and light and Mm -hmm. all that. Yeah. One of the interesting patents that I saw somebody talking about was um, the mechanism underneath the Touch ID sensor. Um, that when you depress the sensor actually registers that and basically it's a piece of metal I guess that bends and then flexes back into its position again as you depress it and then let go um, and obviously that gets huge amounts of usage it gets you know dozens of presses a day and then um, you know over the course of a two-year life cycle of a phone you know multiply that by 700 and something um, so it has to be very you know robust and snap back into position very effectively even with thousands of uses and so one of the patents was for use in that context. So that's mm-hmm. an example of what you're talking about, where it would be out of sight. I mean, it's easy when you think about metal, you think about, oh, the casing of the phone. But, you know, it could well be in some totally out of sight position within the phone where we'd never be aware of it, but it somehow improves the performance in some way. Yeah, that's it, that's true. And that's awesome. But there are a lot of Apple fans that'd be disappointed if that's all it turned out to be. Yep. <laughs> I mean, because well, Apple's yeah. had this it has this history with metal, right? I mean, it has this like like when they did the titanium PowerBook G4 and that was such an exciting computer at the time. Like the idea that my laptop was made of titanium was was just really sexy, you know, and it's <laughs> and, and then they moved on to aluminum and have done incredible things with aluminum. Now they're moving on to steel and to gold. You know, Apple has this thing about metal and being good mm. at metal. And uh, I think there are a lot of Apple fans out there who would be sad if all it was was a, <laughs> a clicky thing for an iPhone button. Yeah, no, it's true. It's true. That might be disappointing. Um, yeah, it's funny. I mean, Apple's a company that's spending probably this quarter will end up spending about $2 billion on R&D. Um, you know, it's a company that spends tons and tons of money researching things, many of which never actually see the light of day. And so, you know, whether it doesn't see the light of day because it never makes it into a product or whether it doesn't see the light of day because it's inside the product um, rather than on the outside where you can see it, um, right. we'll have to see. But, you know, it continues to be fascinating. There are other materials out there like graphene as well, which, you know, have had a lot of promise for many years. And companies like Nokia have had exclusive licenses to those in the past, but we haven't seen them show up either. So it continues to be an area where there's potential for innovation and, and change, but a lot of the potential hasn't really been realized in reality yet. Well, that's about it for another show. We thank you for joining us. Um, I'm Jan Dawson. Aaron Miller has been my co-host as always. Um, We invite your submissions for our question of the week slot. Um, This week we covered the uh, developer preview and betas of the new versions of OS X and iOS, but we'd love your questions that we can answer for you in the coming weeks. So please let us know, leave a comment, or contact us on Twitter or by email. Um, But we thank you for for joining us for another episode, and we look forward to uh, joining you again next week.